Well, last Sunday, we spent some time looking back to when you got saved. I mentioned there are three tenses of your salvation that are set forth in the Bible. And for example, there's the past tense. That's what we did last week. We looked back at when God saved you and what he did for you the moment you got saved. But there's all, and by the way, he saved you from the penalty of sin when you got saved. You're not going to go to hell. Is that good news? That's great news to me. I'm not going to go to hell. I'm guaranteed I'm going to go to heaven because God back there saved me when I put my faith in his son, Jesus Christ. But then there's a present tense. That's where you are right now if you're saved. Now, some of you may not be in the present tense. You may not be saved. And it's my prayer for you that as you listen to this morning's message and think about what's being said in the scripture, what the Bible says, that God may speak to your heart and you'll say, I want to be saved. That's what I pray that God will do for you. But the present tense, that is, you are presently being saved. You're supposed to be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is saving you right now from the power of sin. You don't have to fall into temptation and sin. Rather, you can be victorious. And then, of course, there's that future tense, which is yet to be. And that's what we call the time of your glorification when the Lord comes back and takes every believer out of here. Or he takes you home. And then, of course, you're going to have eventually receive a glorified body. And you will be saved from the very presence of sin. And the more you walk with God and grow in your relationship, the more you want to be saved from the presence of sin. You want that old sin nature out of you, and you want to be totally free from that. What an incredible time that's going to be. Well, having looked at the three tenses of our salvation, then I spoke for a little while on how a person gets saved. If there's anything that Satan wants to confuse you about and over, especially if you're not saved, it's that issue of how to get saved. Masses of people, multitudes upon multitudes of people, join a church, belong to a church, hoping that by doing that, maybe it's through the sacraments of that church, that they somehow will get saved. That is not how any person gets saved. Well, then there's the issue that, okay, if I am a good person, If I don't really go off the deep end and do wicked and evil things, that surely a God of love will accept me. You need then to read this love letter, what he has to say about that, because he says, no, I cannot accept you on that basis. And so you need to know how to get saved. I shared three steps from the Bible. Number one, you are confronted with your sin and its consequences. After all, you've got to be saved from something. Well, you're saved because you're a sinner and a holy God can't allow you to just come into heaven. So you have to be confronted. And boy, that's very uncomfortable. People don't like to be told they are a sinner. Do you? No. No, and that's why it's hard on us to go to them and say, you need to understand what God says. All have sinned. That means you all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so that is what has to be, you have to be confronted with the fact of what you're being saved from. You're a sinner, and there's a consequence. You know what the consequence is? He says that all who are sinners, if they don't receive the provision of his son, they end up damned in an eternal hell of the lake of fire. Oh, by the way, we still preach that around here. Because it's in the book. 
It's because why Jesus came. He came to keep you or get you out of hell, out of the lake of fire. And so we try to preach and teach the whole counsel of God, as it says out on our sign out there. Well, then after you are confronted with your sin, its consequences, then you learn from the Bible. Now, that means somebody may come and tell you what the Bible says, but you learn from the Bible, God's written revelation, who Jesus is and what he did for you. You cannot get saved until you know who Jesus is. And what he did for you, because he is the only one who can save you. And so that has to be communicated to you, as it says in Romans chapter 10. And then now here comes your part. You repent. You repent of your sin, your sinful life, acknowledging you are a sinner, and you turn to Jesus Christ, trusting him alone to save you. That is how one comes to saving faith. Well, having expounded those three points on how a person gets saved, we then turned our attention to the greatness of your salvation. Dear ones, so many people do not know these wonderful truths. And many have gone to truth all their, I mean truth, many have gone to church all their lives. They're glad, and this is wonderful, and you are, that you're saved. You're glad that you have the assurance of salvation. You're glad to know that even though you still struggle with sin, when you die or the Lord comes back, you are going to go up and be with Him in heaven. And you have that guarantee, and you're so glad about that, that God saved you out of hell, out of the lake of fire, and that you're going to go to heaven. But so often, that's the extent of their theology. And God says, wait a minute. I want you to understand something about the greatness of your salvation. And I believe this. As I get a hold of this, and it's not easy to get a hold of, and as you get a hold of it, I trust there will be a change in your and my life that we really will give a lot more diligence to growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That our desire will be to love Him more, to serve Him more, to walk with Him in fellowship day by day, step by step. Well, that's why I'm spending time. Because if you're going to grow, I don't want you to know just how to get saved. I want you to know something about the greatness of your salvation. And what I mean is what God did for you immediately when you got saved. These are things God did for you when you got saved. Well, in your outline, and you can take that out of the bulletin if you want, I would encourage you to use that. We talked about five things that immediately happened to you when the moment you got saved. First of all, number one, when you got saved, and this is already in your outline, you were already in the eternal plan of God. I mean, he shoved you back in eternity to pass and said, I had you in mind and you were part of my plan. He shoves you into eternity the future and says, this is what I had in plan for you for the future as well. And now here comes that point where you get saved. He now saves you and he fulfills that part of this eternal plan in your life. Number two, when you got saved, God redeemed you. He bought you out of the slave market of sin. He redeemed you. The Bible talks about redeemed. We've seen that song, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed how I love the Lord who did that for me. Number three, when you got saved, God reconciled you to himself. Now, you've seen these words, but they're like, okay, so? And that's why I tried to stress about what it means. Prior to your saving, and this is what the unsaved people don't get a hold of. 
prior to your getting saved. That means, if you're here this morning and you are unsaved, God says, this is not me, this is God. God says, you are my enemy. No matter how wonderful you are, how good you are, all the good deeds that you might do, you can give your body to be burned. He says, you are my enemy. And now listen to this. He says, my wrath hangs over your head. You're just one heartbeat from an eternal hell. That's what the Bible teaches. That's why Jesus had to come and die on that cross, that he would bear your deserved and my deserved wrath. And to be reconciled, God had to do something in order to say, now I welcome you into my presence. We've been uh, bonded back to you were alienated before, but now you are accepted in my sight. That is the third thing that God did the moment you got saved. That wrath is all gone. Wow. You're no longer an enemy. You're a son, a, di- a, chi- a child of God. Number four, when God saved you, he became, you became related to him through propitiation. There's a big word for you. It means God had to be satisfied. He couldn't just say, okay, you're forgiven. Okay, I accept you. No, he says, I have to be satisfied. I have to be appeased. And you know where that came, how that came about. It came about through his son who took your place. And so, he, you, when you got saved, you became related to God through propitiation. And then number five, when God saved you, he forgave you all your trespasses, all your sins. Past, and we, we, we love that part, present and future. Isn't that amazing? That's what the Bible teaches. He for, Listen, there's people, Mary, Mary uh, I think, uh, Kathy, I don't know if you're still in that with the uh, uh, Campus Crusade where you write, they, they send people and you have to answer the questions. Are you still doing But Mary is. And one of the big questions is, what do I do about my sins? I just feel guilty because of my sins. And what a wonderful thing to write back and say what God says in the Bible. When you come to Christ and get saved, he says, I deal with all of them once and for all. I mean, this is staggering. Now, that, that does not mean there are not consequences to your sinning. Uh, you realize that if you commit a murder, you're probably going to go to prison and so forth. But, uh, uh, or maybe there's a, uh, alienations in family because of sinful things that went on and so forth. But he says, as far as God's concerned, he says, I deal with all of them. I forgive them all. It's just amazing. He throws them, he says, in the deepest sea. He casts them behind his back as far as the east is from the west. And he remembers them no more. Now you understand this is a great salvation. This is truly a great salvation that God... He doesn't just save you to get you out of hell into heaven. This is a far great salvation more than that. So as we continue this morning, looking at the greatness of your salvation, what God did for you when you got saved, I want to share with you again this insightful statement from Lewis Berry Chafer. I did last week. I want to share it again and just... Try to connect with me as I read these words, okay? This is what he says. If the believer's destiny were not so clearly asserted, it could not be believed by any in this world. The testimony of the scriptures, however, cannot be diminished. And now he quotes scriptures. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, that's Adam, We shall also bear the image of the heavenly, that's Jesus Christ. And then, beloved, now, 
Right now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And then he goes on, Though these statements seem to reach far beyond the range of possible things, this exalted destiny comports with that which is required in the very purpose of God. It will be remembered, he says, that salvation is wrought to the end that the grace of God may be revealed. Now listen to this next statement. God's grace is infinite and therefore requires that the undertakings which measure that grace shall extend into infinite realms. Likewise, salvation is wrought to satisfy the infinite love of God, and in satisfying that love, God must do His utmost for the objects of His affection. Conformity to the image of Christ is the supreme reality in the universe, and divine love can be content with nothing less as a measure of its achievement. End of quote. Now you begin to just from that quote to understand something about the greatness of your and my salvation. And there's far more to that greatness of your salvation. We're going to continue in our discovery of what God did for you when you got saved at this point. And in your outline, we're at number six. Now listen, I realize that you're in a theology class now. And I remember what I did in the theology class way back there. Hey, Bill, answer this question for me. Oh, yes, sir. So I'm hoping that somehow God will keep you awake and He will speak to your heart and my heart and He will show you, God the Holy Spirit will show you something of the greatness of your salvation. So we begin with number six in your outline. When God saved you, He joined you to Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. That's a staggering thought. What is He saying? When Jesus was nailed on that cross, and on Friday we're going to celebrate, focus on that, He says, you were nailed on that cross with Him. Not to pay for any of your sins, but rather to die with Him. Look with me at Romans 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. We've been over this, but I just want to read the scripture, make a couple comments. Romans 6, 1 through 10. Paul says, what shall we say then? I mean, he's overwhelmed by the greatness of the salvation. Are we to continue in sin then so that grace may be increased? I mean, if you're fully forgiven, why not just go out and sin? May May it never be, he says. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, that's placed into Christ, Jesus, have been placed into or baptized into his death? We're not talking about water baptism here, okay? Got that? This is not water baptism. This is a spiritual thing that happened. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Not maybe so, maybe not. He means you will. You will walk in newness of life. Why? For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self, the old man, the old sin nature was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would be no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. I realize that's heavy theology. Who can comprehend it? 
Now, verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Listen, He means now. Not in the future when you're resurrected. Now. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Wow. Well, there are two main considerations in this statement. When God saved you, he joined you to Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Number one, the death of Christ is a judgment of the sin nature in you. You notice that? Sin died. But that judgment does not mean that your sin nature is rendered incapable of action. It's still there active, isn't it? Or that it has changed in its character. Well, then what does it mean? What does it mean? It means that a perfect judgment is gained against your sin nature and that God is now righteously free to deal with your sin nature as a judge thing. What's important about that? Because you keep on sinning and I keep on sinning. But God says, I'm able to deal with you now as a son instead of as one who is my enemy, one who is separated from me. But number two, you are now free to walk in newness of life. Why? Because you are vitally joined to the living Christ, the resurrected Christ. Your sin nature's power over you has been broken. It's still there, but it's broken. This all took place the moment you got saved. You do not have to walk in a pattern of habitual sin. I realize you come to Romans 6 like I do in 7 and 8 and say, Man, Lord, make this a reality of my life. I want to experience this. He says it can be. Because you're joined to the living Christ, having died with Him. You know Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. That's a once-for-all act. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, because I'm still living, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. I mean, that's a staggering thought. It takes us the rest of our life, I suppose, to understand all of that. When God saved you, He joined you to Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. It has to do with your sin nature, my sin nature, and the new life we now have in Jesus Christ. And we're free to live that life in Him as we abide in Him. Number seven. When God saved you, He freed you from the law. He freed you from the law. Romans 6, 14, since you're still there. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Amazing grace. Romans 7, verses 4 through 6. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made, listen, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another. To him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Listen, as an unsaved person, what could you do to please God? Just silently answer that. And I'll answer for you. Absolutely nothing. Got that? Boy, that blows an unsaved person away in the world out there. As an unsaved person, you could do absolutely nothing to please God. The law 
condemned you. Why? Because it was God's perfect high standard. He said, you break the law at one point, you're guilty of all. So all it did was condemn you as a matter... Well, let me go ahead and read here. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit... What? What kind of fruit? For death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. Here it is. So that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Paul called the law a ministry of condemnation. 2 Corinthians 3. The law, as perfect and wonderful as it was, All it did was condemn you and me because we could not keep it perfectly. And God being perfect says, what did he say in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, nobody can. Ah, but there is one, Jesus Christ. He was absolutely perfect. And guess where I am when I put my faith in him? I am now in him. But now there's been a change about this law thing in you and me. Let me illustrate this way. A guy, a single guy, has a very large house, and he needs somebody to come and take care of his house. So, he looks in the want ads, and he finds different people available. He calls, he finds this one young lady that's willing to do it. And he has an interview, and she says, all right, I'll give you the job. She comes, she has a job description, she has duties to perform, and she gets paid, right? That's the deal, Okay. But as she's working in that house, doing that, that's like being under the law. The law demands it. Okay, I'll do my best to do it. But the problem is I can't. Okay. But as she's working in the house, guess what? They start to fall in love with each other. And they get married. Now, the relationship has completely changed. She now doesn't come to work because of duty She loves this man, and it is her joy now to take care of the household things and so forth because of that new relationship. He says, that's what happened to you. I freed you from the law. You're no longer under its bondage, under its requirements. It's all complete in Jesus Christ, and now you serve him not out of duty, but what? Out of love. Incredible change took place there. So when God saved you, he freed you from the law. That happened the moment you got saved. No more trying to please God, trying to work your way to heaven, trying to feel better about yourself. No. Now there's a new relationship. Number eight. When God saved you, you immediately became a child of God. Profound. You immediately became a child of God. 1 John 3, 1, the first part. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. You, listen to me, you and I were not family before. You become family with God the moment you get saved. How did you become a child of God? Well, it says in John chapter 3 that you were born again. Born again by the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. Titus 3, 5 says the Holy Spirit has regenerated you. He's made you alive. Another word, Ephesians 2, 1 says you were quickened. That means made alive prior to not possessing life. And then in chapter, or Galatians 3, 26, it says you're called sons 
of God. There's different terminologies. And then 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are called a new, excuse me, new creation. A new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Consider each of those works of the Holy Spirit that took place the moment you got saved. They each took place the moment you got saved. You became a child of God. You were born again. He regenerated you. He quickened you. You became a son of God. You became a new creation. What does all that mean, though? Now get this. What does all that mean? It means God, the first person of the Trinity, became your legitimate father, and you became his legitimate son or daughter, if you please, and thus an heir and joint heir with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about that. Think about that. The moment you got saved, God did not just become your God. He did not just save you and deliver you out of hell. He said, you are now my family. You are my son. You are my daughter, if you please. Son is used because it speaks of the heirship thing there. He he deliberately chose to give you your new birth into his family. Why? So, listen to this. So that he could be your father. He has myriads upon myriads of angels that stand ready to do his bidding. Wonderful. But he says, I want something more. I want a family. And you have become my family, my son, my daughter, and I am now your heavenly father. And it's all designed for you. Isn't that amazing? To his glory, of course. And no wonder then all the angels, the righteous angels, shout for joy when anybody puts their faith in Jesus Christ and becomes a family member. Wow, staggering. And that happened the moment you got saved. Number nine, when God saved you, he immediately adopted you. Now that ought to raise your eyebrows. Now wait a minute. Wait a minute here. Wait a minute. I thought, Pastor, you just got through saying that you were became a child of God. You were born. You were born into his family. And now you're telling me he adopted me. What's the deal here? Amazing truth here. It happened the moment you got saved. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. You see what we read in just Passover? I'm thankful for those who uh, have far better minds than mine that have been called to do research and all that in the theology of the Scriptures, and we want to be accurate to that theology. But look at Ephesians 1, 4-6. Just as He chose us in Him that is in His Son before the foundation of the world. Isn't that something? He had you purposely in mind before He even created the world. That we would be holy and blameless before Him, In love he predestined us to adoption. There it is. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intentions of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. The beloved being Jesus Christ. Understand this. Divine adoption has almost nothing in common with human adoption where an outsider becomes a member of a family. It almost has nothing to do with that. We adopted Sham, for example. He's from Nepal. And he now is our son and became legally our son. And we became his mom and dad through adoption. But this is way beyond that. Your divine adoption is an act by God in which you, already a child by actual birth through the Spirit of God, are placed 
forward, get this, are placed forward as an adult son in your relation to God. Did you follow that? There's no babyhood. We know people become new Christians and they need to grow. But God says, no babyhood. Here's a great one. No adolescence. Yeah, I knew you'd like that one. No adolescence. He said, the moment you got saved, I adopted you. I placed you forward as a complete, full son, mature son, if you please. Does that negate growing in His grace and knowledge? No, no. But what it means is there is no body of... Well, let me put it this way. Galatians teaches us that you are immediately free from tutors and governors who symbolize the law principle, and you are immediately responsible to live the full orb spiritual life of an adult son in the father's household. No period of irresponsible childhood is recognized. And there's no body of scripture that, for example, that undertakes to direct the conduct of beginners in the Christian life as in distinction to those who are mature. What does that mean? Whatever God says to the old and established Christian, He says to every believer, including those most recently saved. 2 Corinthians 3.18, though we still grow in this grace and knowledge. So adulthood says, God says, look, the whole scriptures are for you. I treat you as a mature, full-grown adult son. Amazing thought there. By the way, if you're in Christ, brand new Christian, but you're in Christ, and you walk with Him, you abide in fellowship with Him, what happens? You're always victorious. You're just continuing to grow spiritually, mature, that way. But Christ is fully mature, obviously, never sins. He's perfect in every way. And when you're in Him and when you choose to yield yourself to Him, what's happening? Well, He is your life. No wonder this adoption makes sense. Number 10. When God saved you, he made you acceptable to himself by Jesus Christ. Or you might want to put in Jesus Christ. When God saved you, he made you acceptable to himself by Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.6 To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. That's Jesus. The King James Version reads, To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. The uh, Greek verb used in chapter 1, verse 6, means to grant freely as a favor. Maybe 1 Peter 2, 5 captures more the essence of that verb in action. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, now here it is, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's the idea behind it. God, through Jesus Christ, has made you completely acceptable in His very presence. No wonder He says to every believer, Come boldly to my throne. Come! I invite you all to come, because you're my sons and daughters, and you've been made acceptable in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Because of your union with Christ and therefore your acceptance before holy God, the Bible makes these wonderful declarations about you. This will help you and understand the flavor a little bit. Appreciate the flavor. It declares you to have been made righteous. Remember the prodigal son? Came to his senses. Came home to the father. Father, forgive me. Didn't get hardly anything out of his mouth. Beautiful picture of salvation, isn't it? What did the father do? 
He got the best robe and he clothed him. And there was a feast that took place, wasn't it? God, when you and I, when I first came to Jesus Christ, of course I was six or seven, some of you are much older. Maybe today some of you will come to Jesus Christ. I don't know your heart. When you come, the Father takes the robe of Jesus Christ, His Son's righteousness, and He clothes you with that righteousness. Isn't that amazing? All the righteousness that Jesus Christ is becomes yours forevermore. Do you understand why then you can't lose your salvation if you really have it? What a staggering thing to think that He clothed you like that prodigal son comes running back to the father and he says, Father, forgive me. And he takes the, the best robe and puts it around him and a ring on his finger, which talked about what? Airship. And they celebrated. That's what God does when a sinner comes home. He makes, declares you have been righteous. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.30. And if you don't have this in your notes, you need to know where it is. Amazing verse. Just give some thought to what he says there. 1 Corinthians 1.30. But by his doing, God's doing, you are where? Right up here, right? Say it together. In Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. That's right. Not the world's wisdom, but God's wisdom. What's the next word? And he became what? Say it. Righteousness. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. A church, listen, a church, no church on the face of the earth can give you that righteousness. None. Don't be deceived by the enemy. Only God can give you that. And it came through His Son. The moment you got saved, He clothed you with His Son's righteousness. But there is a second wonderful declaration that comes out of God's making you acceptable unto Himself through His Son. We saw there in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ Jesus became to us not only justification, but also sanctification. Now that's a big 50 cent word. Sanctification. It speaks though of position. The tabernacle. God says, make the tabernacle according to these designs. And by the way, the tabernacle belongs to me. It's mine. What goes on there, I'm going to oversee. Exactly who's going to be there serving and so forth and what's going to happen. That's what he did to you in sanctification. It means he said, I set you apart as mine. You are mine. Even in this fallen, wicked, evil world of people that are not his, you are mine. You are holy unto the Lord, in other words. But you were, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Paul's trying to talk to the Corinthian believers about the sins they're in. Now they're saved. He calls them saints. But they're living in sin. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, But you were washed, but you were sanctified once for all complete. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. But listen... When God saved you and made you acceptable to Himself and His Son, He caused you immediately to be, listen to this one, perfected forever. Perfected forever. Dear ones, I I hope that somehow God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to your heart and mind and mine as well, of the incredibleness of this great salvation. I mean, what He did the moment you and I got saved. He perfected you and me forever. That doesn't take the sin nature out of us. 
That's why we talked about the fact that you were, you died with Jesus on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. So that God can deal with you, even though that awful thing's still in us. But he perfected forever. Listen to Hebrews 10, 14, and boy, this is another one you want to know in your Bible. For by one offering, what offering? Jesus Christ on that cross. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We saw that Jesus is your, your righteousness. We saw that he's your sanctification. And therefore, he's perfected for all time you. Because you've been sanctified. Your union with the perfect Lord Jesus Christ secures his perfection for all time for you, as well as being a child of God. I just hope that you're beginning to see something about Jesus Christ being your life, your all. He really is your and my complete salvation. Number 11, when God saved you, he justified you. Now that's an interesting one. When God saved you, he justified you. The word justify and righteous are from the same Greek word, dikaios. Okay? You are made righteous because of your position in Christ. Follow me carefully. You're made righteous because of your position in Christ. When you put your faith in him, he placed you in Christ. But you are justified Listen to me, by a declaratory decree of God. has to do with something God says about you and me. I wonder how many of you have stood in a court of law guilty? Hmm. No hands raised on that one? (laughs) I have. Uh Uh-oh. You'll be digging in my history now. I was going to Bible college. And I was on my way to a church where I was supposed to preach. Uh, Saturday I was driving to Beatrice, Nebraska, out of Omaha. And uh, I tried to I borrow a roommate's car. He'll never borrow, loan me a car again. But anyway, uh, and I, I passed a guy and uh, sideswiped him in passing him. And so I ended up having to go to court. And uh, in the court, it was a little frightening experience to say the least. I was there embarrassed and humiliated. Anyway, uh, I, was, I went to the court. And I mean, this judge was older gentleman, he was throwing the book at everybody. Most of them were alcoholics. and so I mean, he was throwing the, he was really throwing the book at them. And uh, then here I come along. And he said, what are you here for? I said, well, I got a ticket because I was in an accident. You were in an accident. What do you do? I said, well, okay. <laughs> I was on my way to a church. To, oh, you preach? Yeah, I, I was Bible college and I was going to preach. You would preach, huh? Yeah, I got a son-in-law, he says, we have to feed him half time to keep him going, he and his wife. He said, our daughter, he said, uh, best I can do you is one dollar. I said, thank you, Lord. <laughs> thank you, Lord. What's this have to do with justifi- justification? God justified you. Romans chapter 4, verse 5 says this, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is credited as righteousness. What is the one requirement out of that verse that you and I are to do to get this righteousness, to get justified? What is it? Believe. Believe in God and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and what He did on the cross. And here's what happens when you do that. You're still a sinner. You're still guilty. You're still condemned, but you stand before the judge, and he says, I know you're a sinner. I know you're guilty, but I free you. I set you free. That's what justification means. God makes a declaration in your favor, the one who's guilty, the one who is condemned, and he says, I set you free. 
That's what it means. He did that the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ and got saved. Wow. By the way, it means I can offer genuine salvation, so can you, to that guilty, lost sinner out there by simply putting their faith in Jesus Christ. God justifies who? Who does he justify? Tell me. The ungodly. Quit trying then. Quit trying to please God and work your way into heaven. He justifies who? The ungodly. This judge, you stand before him guilty, condemned, and he makes a declaration about you. I justify you. I set you free. Amazing. Number 12. When God saved you, he delivered you from the power of darkness. Wow. The moment you got saved, you were delivered from the power of darkness. Colossians 1.13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. Scripture tells us and teaches us that the unsaved person is under the power of Satan. 2 Corinthians 4 says, verses 3 and 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world, who's that? Satan, yeah, Satan. Whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you were formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. 1 John 5, 19, We know that we are of God. Now look at this part. And that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. When Paul got his divine commission, he said this. Jesus sent him, saying to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Listen, dear ones, there is a great, vast, profound difference between you saved, a child of God, and the unsaved world out there. The people you live next to, maybe you live with them. The people you go to school with, the people you work There is a vast difference. Why? Because their father is who? Come on, the devil. Jesus said that. And who is the devil? Number one, he's a liar. And isn't the world believing a lie? Thank God, because I believe that lie, and so did you before you got saved. We believe that lie, that somehow we could make it, somehow we could make things better. But not only is he a liar, but he's also called what? A deceiver? Boy, has he deceived the lost people. Let's not stop there. What else is he called? A murderer. He purposely is going to murder their souls and see that they're in hell for eternity where they're going to be tormented day and night forever. That's the one that we were in that camp. In that darkness, and you know that, you go try to witness to the people, you try to get them to see that you have the the salvation, you have the assurance of hope of heaven and all that, you've been forgiven, and they look at you like, man, you are really, I mean, they just can't believe you at all. And no matter how hard you talk, they just want to argue with you. Why? Because they're in a world of darkness, of deception, believing a lie, and in that he will murder them if he can, taking them right into hell, murdering their soul. And God said, the moment you put your faith in me, immediately you were delivered out of that kingdom of darkness. Wow. Staggering. 
What a great salvation. Let's go on quickly here. Number 13, when God saved you, he transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the other part of that verse. He didn't just take you out of Satan's kingdom and say, goodbye. No, he put you into the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1.13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Well, we were born physically into Satan's kingdom of darkness. And we were born spiritually into Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son there. Remember what Jesus told the religious leader Nicodemus? Truly, truly, boy, he emphasized that, didn't he? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. When God saved you and me, he took us out of Satan's kingdom of darkness, transferred us into his kingdom of his son of light there. Yes, that kingdom is a spiritual kingdom now, but it will be a literal kingdom in the future. He is going to return, establish his kingdom, and we're going to be there with him. That's the greatness of this salvation that he gave you the moment you got saved. Revelation 5.10, you, the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, have, have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. You see, we seek a city whose foundation has, uh, who has foundation, sorry, whose architect and builder is God. We have no continuing city here. We are aliens and strangers, a people for God's own possession. It all happened a split second. God saved you and me. And finally, number 14, when God saved you, he gave you as a gift to his son. You're a gift. John 17 in that chapter, seven times Jesus said, whom you have given me. In John six thirty seven, he said, all that the father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Listen to this quote again by Chafer. Just a rich quote. Listen to it. The imagination will not have gone far astray if it pictures a situation in eternity past when the Father presents individual believers separately to the Son. Did you get that? When the Father presents individual believers separately to the Son, each representing a particular import and value not approached by another. Like a chest of jewels, collected one by one and wholly diverse, these love gifts appear before the eyes of the Son of God. Should one be missing... Should one be missing, he, the Savior, would be rendered inexpressibly poor. End of quote. And what a quote. Talking about you being a personal, significant, valuable, priceless gift being offered by the Father to his Son. Dr. C.I. Schofield adds this. He says, Jesus Christ is God's love gift to the world, John 3.16 and believers are the Father's love gift to Jesus Christ. It is Christ who commits the believer to the Father for safekeeping so that the believer's security rests upon the Father's faithfulness to his Son, Jesus Christ. End of quote. Often when I will pray for somebody I want to see get saved, I'll say, Oh God, would you see your Son out there on that cross, beaten, bloody, his life ebbing out, 
blood ebbing out, and he did that for this person I'm praying for, would you be willing to give that person as a gift to your son? Would you take the blindness away, the hard heart out of them, open their mind of understanding, and cause them to cry out, my Lord and my God, and come to saving faith? I'll often pray that way because of this issue that God says, I give you individually as a gift to my son. Well, you've sat now for a long time in my theology class. I hope you haven't gone completely to sleep, not totally numb, but here's my desire for you and me. I just long that God the Holy Spirit will show you the greatness of this salvation you possess. Because if he will, it's more than just saving you and getting you out of hell and giving you a like they say, a, a, tri- a ticket going to heaven. It's far more than that. It is a so great a salvation. He says, don't drift. Hebrews 2, don't drift the rest of the way until he takes you home. Don't neglect this so great a salvation. But say, God, I want to invest in it. I want to abide in Christ, to walk in fellowship with Him, to, here's my life, I want to serve you. I want to walk in obedience and let you use me in whatever way you want me until the last breath I draw and you take me into your presence. I want that because I see now it indeed is a great salvation. And dear ones, we've only looked at the past tense and we didn't look at all things even there of what God did for you and me the moment you got saved. There's still the present. There's also the future. But I just, and by the way, if you're here and you're not saved, if you've never put your faith fully in Jesus Christ and said, I am a sinner, and I understand now that if I die in this condition, I'm going to go to hell because I deserve to go there, and that's what God says. Perfect, righteous, holy, just God says that. But I don't want that. And I understand I have to trust Jesus and Him alone to save me. I hope you'll put your faith in Him because there is no other salvation except in Jesus Christ. No other way. Had there been, and we're going to celebrate here on Friday and Easter, had there been, God would have never, never sent His Son to bear all your sin and all your deserved wrath and judgment. He would never have done that had there been any other conceivable possible way for you or me to get saved. Oh, put your faith in him. Childlike faith, come to saving faith. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the insights about our salvation. I realize it's heavy stuff. It really is like sitting in a theology class. But, oh, God, we need to see it's more than just you saving us out of hell so we can go to heaven. It's far, far more than that, far greater than that. And I pray, Father, that somehow your spirit will move on our hearts and minds and lives, and we really will work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We already possess it if we put our faith in you. Now you said work it out with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen.